chapter 2. And it, remember, the end of chapter 1, it's, been, it's, it's just been devastation, more or less. Ruth and Naomi, they're, it's a bad situation. They're, they're coming home, and as Naomi has said, I'm, I'm coming home empty. Don't call me pleasant anymore. Don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. Call me Mara. Uh, because that good and great God has dealt, as she says, harshly. She's trying to reconcile in her mind just how good and great God is because her circumstances seem to say otherwise. She's wrestling in all of this. But now we begin to see the story kind of move forward. And, and in it, we see something of the realization that God, oh my goodness, is great and he is good. It's now God stepping to the forefront of this story and moving on behalf of his people in incredible ways. So chapter two, verse one. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. That's just, by the way, the narrator giving us a heads up. Ruth and Naomi don't get this at this point. It's the narrator saying, hey, by the way, something's about to go down. God's about to show his goodness and greatness. Verse 2, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of, again, the clan of Elimelech. Just so you won't miss it, it's repeating itself, right? Verse 4, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. That's Yahweh, the Lord be with you. And they answered, well, the Lord bless you too, right? There's all this Lord language going on, important stuff. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes? She just previously said, I'm going to go to the field, and whoever I gain favor with, I'm going to stay in that field. And now she's stunned that she's actually finding favor with someone, right? Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully known to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord, Yahweh, repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then Ruth says, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have, you have comforted me 
and you have spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not of your servants. And here's now the new text, right? The story continues. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied. And she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And Paul also uh, some out from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law, Naomi, saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over, had left over after being satisfied at lunchtime. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is, and here's the realization moment, Boaz. Stunning. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close to my young men until they had finished all my harvest. That's like two to three months of work that, that's been promised to her. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with this young woman, lest in in another field, you'd be assaulted. Uh, so she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. All right, let's pray, and we'll jump into it. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it teaches us. So even this morning, uh, Jesus, we sit at your feet as the pupil um, and want to learn from your word. Even though you use pastors to preach, uh, God, we want your word to be heard. We want your word to fall upon our hearts. And so, Jesus, we ask even now that by your spirit, you would teach us. And in teaching us, Lord, even as that final song was sung, give us eyes to see your beauty. Let us look upon your holiness. as those who often feel like Ruth. Circumstantially, everything just seems backwards. Our identity before others is none but shame. And so we ask God that you would show us just how good you are. How good you are to us in Christ you would even take circumstances and rework them to demonstrate your goodness. We know you've ultimately done that in giving us Jesus at that cross, but we know you also care about our daily needs and you provide. So God, teach us something of yourself this morning, we pray, and it's in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, um, James continued 
what has been something of an emphasis between, as you see on the screen, faith and favor. We, we've talked about faith and favor even through the January series, that prayer series. Uh, and what we've come to realize is that, yes, th faith and favor is actually some of what we would refer to as like God's covenantal ethic with his people. When you jump into the family of God, there's ethics at play. There's expectations that he has on us and expectations that he calls us to have on him and says, this is how this relationship is to work out. And, and the wording that we gain from scripture is this faith and favor, or we could say it's reward and risk. So you could go to Hebrews chapter 11, you'll see what faith is there, and you'll recognize that no one pleases God without faith, and yet God is postured to reward those who diligently what? Seek him. You see throughout Old Testament, New Testament, this is this covenantal ethic. God's relationship to his people, it's this interplay between faith and favor. And so what we've seen here now in Ruth, even last week more specifically, is that Ruth is exercising this bold, risky, but humble faith. She's taking incredible risk. And as we see then, we began to see it last week, we'll now see it a little bit more in chapter 2, is that God is rewarding that humble, bold, risky faith with lavish favor. So what are we to see of God in Ruth chapter 2? What are we to see of his heart for this humble, bold, risky faith that Ruth is exercising? How is God demonstrating his favor? What do we come to know of God in Ruth chapter 2? That's the question that we're going to get at this morning. But before we do that, I want, to, I want to give you eyes, and that's why I thought the final song that we hit on was like, oh man, this is a Holy Spirit moment, because this is, this is exactly what, what I've prepared and I felt like God is getting at this morning. We need eyes to see God at work in Ruth chapter 2. You need eyes, it's like, it's time to put on the spiritual spectacles when you look into Ruth chapter 2, because nowhere do we see God explicitly working. It doesn't say, and God did this, and God did that. You don't catch that. You don't catch that in our own lives, do you, necessarily? Oh yeah, God's done this, or God's that, like, you don't see it written in the clouds, necessarily. You have to have spiritual eyes to see the fingerprints of God in your life and in your circumstances. And so I need to help you put on spiritual lenses as we look at Ruth chapter 2, so we can gain something of an understanding of who our God is. So Ruth chapter 2, what we begin to see, one of the ways that we begin to see God at work is to recognize all the covenantal language that's in chapter 2. For instance, in chapter 2, verse 4, the, the reapers and Boaz, they greet one another. And how do they greet one another? They greet one another by blessing one another in Yahweh's name. That it, it's just, it would be like us coming together as, as God's people and not just being kind of Christian cliche about things. Lord bless you, brother. Well, Lord bless you too, sister. You know, and it's like, okay, this is, do we really mean what we're saying? Uh, most of the time, no. 
But in these moments, just think, this was a time where God's people have rebelled against him, they've suffered famine, and now God is blessing his people. Why? Because their hearts are now turned back to them, uh, back to him. And so what you begin to see is that God's people are really God conscious. Like, and now they, they expect God to be working for the benefit of one another to the point where they're like speaking these benedictions over one another. Like just in daily activity, the Lord bless you. This is not just cliche. This is, they've come to realize our God is good and our God is great. And oh, may he bless you. And then the turnaround is, oh, may he bless you too. Right? So they have a God awareness in this chapter two. So Boaz and the reapers, they bless one another in verse four. But then a little bit further down, you see Boaz blessing Ruth in Yahweh's name. So again, Boaz is saying, man, may God bless you for the way that he's worked through you. Like, may that exchange happen. There's this God consciousness. There's this God expectation. He's working among us. So may he bless you, Ruth. In verse 20, we'll, say, we'll see Naomi bless Boaz in Yahweh's name. Again, a clear awareness of this promise-keeping covenantal God. And, and Naomi said, man, may may." May God just shower blessing upon Boaz for how God has worked to bless others through Boaz. And so the intention is to cause the reader to see God through the character's own sight of God. Yet, they see God, they expect something of his heart to be realized, something of his promises to be known, something of his blessing to be enjoyed. They couldn't help but see God at work in this season of their life. So they bless one another. When we planted this church, there was this old couple that showed up for a short time just to be like an encouragement to us. Uh, her name was Cass. Joe and Cass, maybe something like that. But Cass, this whole, she couldn't do much, physically speaking. I mean, she just kind of like waddles in very slowly, you know, and, and she would just grab your hand and pull you in. And then she would like download a blessing on you. Not just Christian cliche, not just can I pray for you. She would, she would come, may God bless your efforts and may God help you in your home and may God have blessing upon your children. She just unload this benediction over your life. It was incredible to the point where it's just, man, I'm just getting filled up listening to you bless me, you know, declare this blessing over me. That's the kind of stuff. Like Cass, she couldn't do much, but what she did do is bless others. Not just to be Christian cliche. She really believed God would work through her blessing. She had a God consciousness, a God expectation that God really wants to bless his people. So we see then that God isn't explicitly acting or working in the text necessarily, but we, we see it through just the, the interactions of one another throughout the text. Now, another way that we see God at work in the text is through Boaz. He's the new figure that's kind of put on the scene of the story who actually becomes the instrument of God's kindness and love to Ruth and Naomi. The very God of greatness and goodness that Naomi was struggling with at the end of chapter one 
is the God who works through the work of Boaz to prove his goodness and great, greatness to Ruth and Naomi. You see, Boaz is the express instrument of God's blessing to Ruth and Naomi. It's Boaz at work, but it's God's hand at work, God's hand demonstrating something of his love and blessing to Ruth and Naomi. So you can't see Boaz and not see God. God's doing this. God's working, right? So the text is begging us. It's just begging us to put on our spiritual spectacles and see who is really at work here. While at the forefront, you're going to see all the busyness, so to speak, of of Boaz and Ruth and Naomi interacting with one another, but the text is intended to lift our gaze to see this good and gracious God, to see his faithful and providential hand at work in their redemption. How is that supposed to land on you once you've put those spectacles on? It's so that we might see God's hand at work in our own redemption. Right? It's to gain something of a God consciousness and a God awareness. He really is acting and moving among his people with great favor. Oh, that we would gain eyes for God. So let's see him in the text. Let's see how God expressly favors this bold, humble, risky faith. We're going to do a little review just to kind of get the swing of the narrative here. So the first way that we see God and how he favors bold, risky faith is that God protects the vulnerable under his wings. As chapter 2 opens up, you have Naomi, you have Ruth. They're in need of two particular things, food and family. Food and family, that's their need at this point. So Risky Ruth says this. She says, I'm going out to glean in the field of whoever I find favor with. She, again, she doesn't know Boaz is out there. The narrator in verse 1 isn't tipping them off, right, to the fact that Boaz is there. He's tipping us off to the fact that something incredible is about to happen. There's this guy, Boaz, and he is the one through whom God is going to demonstrate his favor, so nonetheless, like you, you can't see this first step of Ruth. She's going out to glean, and you can't see it in light of there's this guy out there who's going to really shower her with blessing. You don't know that. All you know is she is taking this bold, risky step of faith to go out and glean, right? Now, as James mentioned last week, she is a Gentile Moabite woman. Like, the deck is stacked against her in every way. She is the least on the social scale and therefore having little to no recourse if this thing should go bad. She, she is a prime target for an assault. She has no recourse whatsoever and therefore She's placing herself in a position of incredible vulnerability. We, we see the extent of this vulnerability actually later in the chapter in how Naomi responds. Verse 22, I believe it is, where she says, hey, stick close to some of these ladies because, like, you run the risk of being assaulted out in the field. That's speaking of physical and sexual assault. 
So Ruth is putting herself at incredible risk, physical, perhaps even sexual assault kind of danger. Don't think of Bethlehem in these moments as like something of a Bible belt. Everybody's just being nice and wonderful and honest, and it's the time of the judges. Don't forget, that's the context here. Things are bad. They're Philly-esque, if you will, right? Things are bad. She's taking a risk to go out and glean. And so, in a real sense, she's laying herself, we have to see this from the text, she's laying herself at the mercy of God. Who instituted the laws of gleaning? God. <laughs> God did. As James shared last week, Leviticus 19, that he is the one who instituted these laws of gleaning. And therefore, Ruth is not reclining, if you will, in her, in her poverty mindset of inaction. She's just not sitting back saying, well, woe is us, we're just stuck. No, she throws herself on the mercy of God. This is what he's provided. I'm stepping out and I'm going to cast myself on him. This is radical, humble faith by Ruth. And she is placing herself in incredible posture of vulnerability, stepping out. But as the text shows us, God is all over this thing. As we saw last week at the very beginning, here is this worthy man, Boaz, taking notice of Ruth. Like, this is the moment. If you watch, like, the CSI stuff, you know, you watch the crime scene go down, and, and then it's the forensic team that comes in, and they do all the dusting and everything, and then they throw the black light on, and it's like, all of a sudden, you see what really took place. Oh, my goodness, right? That's what's happening in the text. It's not a crime scene. It's these blessings that are being arranged. It's like you're watching God's hands all over these circumstances. Why? Because Boaz... The narrator tipped us off to who this guy is. He's of the clan of Elimelech. He's a relative. There's going to be prov potential provision and even potential family. All the needs that, that they have could potentially be met through this figure, Boaz. The text is just lighting up the room with a black light. It's like God has been at work. Did Naomi and Ruth see it? Nope. They just, she just took the step of faith. And now the black light's on, and you're watching God's hand all over these circumstances. Here, Boaz takes notice of Ruth. It is divine providence. If you don't know what providence is, theological word, providence in its most simple form is this. It's God's hidden hand at work in our lives. The one minuscule thing that you see of God at work in your life, there's 10,000 more ways in which he's at work in your life. If, we, if he was to put on that divine black light, his hands would be all over your life. But in these moments, it's Ruth and Naomi, and now the reader, that's brought into the fact God's at work in this in amazing ways. But notice them, again, this is a bit of a review, notice how Boaz speaks to her. He refuses to call her a foreigner. He refuses to stereotype her. Verse 8, he calls her what from last week? He calls her, not foreigner, but you can look at your text if you need it. should be in front of you, right? He calls her daughter. Daughter. 
Not, oh, you're this Moabite Gentile piece of junk. He's saying, no, you, you are, verse 8, a daughter. It's an endearing title. It's a title of favor and belonging. And, and, and then Boaz doesn't only declare her as such, but then he invites her into his field. He warns the men not to touch her. He gives her access to the water. Layer upon layer, is, as James said, of God's favor being brought to Ruth through the instrument of Boaz. Ruth is then on her face before Boaz asks, asking, why have I found favor with you? Isn't that how faith often functions? It's like, oh man, I really don't know. I don't know, but I'm just going to cast myself out there. And, and you step out and you say, oh, wow, like God, God's coming through. Oh, amazing. And, and now she's on her face. Like I would have never thought this would be the actual case. Why have you shown me favor? And Boaz responds, verse 12, the Lord repay you. Right? He's heard of her story, and now he blesses her. The Lord repay you, and notice the language, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Your, your risky faith wasn't just about circumstances. It just wasn't about food. It just wasn't about you know, the, the getting out to glean. It was that you have come to take refuge with Yahweh. And in this, it's an ironic statement. Why? Because Boaz is being the agent of God's reward and refuge. <laughs> it's stunning. Like, Boaz is speaking this blessing out over her, but he's the one who God is ultimately using to be a shelter, to be a reward to Ruth. And of course, Ruth is just stunned by this. She says, I have found favor with you. And she says, I have found comfort. Boaz, folks, let's just get to it. Boaz is nothing less than the picture of the risen, conquering Christ who promises to shield us from the enemy, right? He, the, the enemy, you, you know the text and you know how he works. He is the one who accuses the brethren day and night. He wants to remind you of your shame. He wants to remind you in some way that you don't belong but the point of Christ is to shield us from all those accusations, from all that shame. It's Christ who stands and who becomes this, this refuge, who shields the vulnerable under his wings. He is the one who shelters us in our righteousness when we have failed again. He's the one who declares us his own. He's the one who declares over us son, daughter. Not alien, not foreigner, not stranger. No, I know you. You're my family. He shelters us under his wing. This is the favor of God upon Ruth. She has stepped out in faith, and she has come to know God's incredible favor. God is taking personal responsibility to protect vulnerable Ruth under his wing. That's, the that's just the first kind of view of God's favor. This is who he is. This is his heart. Secondly, God satisfies the hungry at his table. Now, this is where we get into the new section of the story. God doesn't only protect the vulnerable, but he satisfies the hungry at his table. Notice what happens, verse 14. Boaz says to her, it's kind of midday by now. She's been working hard. He says to her, come and eat. Incredible, 
the Lord of this harvest, Boaz, is inviting the hungry to his table. Right? And just catch it. It's radical. She is the lowest of the low on the social ladder. She doesn't belong at Boaz's table. She doesn't belong with the men, servants who are sitting there and eating. But Boaz invites her in. It's an undeserved privilege to eat at his table. An invitation. This is the heart of God, folks. This is what God does. He invites the one who doesn't belong in to sit at his table and experience his blessing. Folks, in in this moment, what is expressly happening is that Boaz is actively and publicly choosing to remove the stigma of her shame. He's choosing not to treat her like a Gentile but he is choosing to treat her as the daughter of Naomi that she is, as the child of God that she is. He publicly is taking the sting of the stigma away by inviting her to his table. Uh, The picture, as I studied through this, the picture that came to my mind is the greatest showman. You know, you've seen that, right? And, And there's that point in place of, like, express racism being felt, where I think it's Zach Efron and, and Z- Z- I don't know how to say her name. Z- yeah, so they have this, rela- they're, they're taking a liking to one another. But this is culturally like taboo, like no, no, no. And, and they go to some sort of ball or to listen to someone sing or something, and, and their hands now kind of connect, right? And it's this moment of, oh, man, this is great. Yeah. And, and then Zach Efron sees his parents, and it's this moment of, It's like transferred shame. The eyes come to him, and now he steps away from her, and the shame is placed on her. What Boaz is doing in this situation, he's reversing it all. He's reversing it. He is standing up, and he's like reaching out and grabbing that hand and showing everybody, look who I now love, right? He's standing up for her. He will not allow her to endure that shame. He's standing up. He's being the shield. He's being the one who's stepping in the way and saying, no, this is wrong the way others are perceiving this, and this is also right. He's lifting up her hand. He's inviting her to his table. It's incredible. It's, I mean, the ancient reader, the, draw, the jaw is dropped at this point incredible act of actually stepping in the way of potential shame and taking away the stigma that is culturally there. It is beautiful. Do we not see this in Jesus? Folks, in a real spiritual sense, we did not belong. In our sin, We were foreigners to God's purposes. We were separated from God's promises, but Jesus invited us in. That's like the New Testament. Jesus shows up and is inviting everyone to him. Come and eat. That's why we call him the bread of life. That's why we call him the one who is the fountain of life, who satisfies the thirsty soul. This is Jesus. He invites us in to take away our shame. We are his daughter who have personal access to his table. 
This is what Jesus does for us. This is the gospel. The covenant-keeping God is on display through Boaz, inviting this Gentile to sit at his table. But it gets sweeter. Notice a little bit further. Boaz invites Ruth to his table, but there's just no limit to what he will give her. There is no limit to what she has access to on that table. So verse 14, she ate until she was what? Oh, yes. That's such an appropriate word. Like she is satisfied. You know where you've gone out to eat and like the food is like up here and there's still a whole bunch on the table and it looks just so good, but you're just so full. That's where she's at at this point. Oh, if I just could keep on eating, but it's so miserable at this point, but I just want to keep on eating. She's satisfied in every way possible. And Boaz is the one, even in the text, who's handing her the food. More, more, more that she could eat to the point where like, she eventually has to like, wrap things up in a to-go box. Right, you've been there? I, I love it. I love, my wife loves it even more, and I love it. But it's to sit at the table and to know that what's come here is going to satisfy me, and I'm getting leftovers. Like, this is, like, I don't know about you, but when, I, when we go to, like, Texas Roadhouse, that, I don't know what it is, but that leftover piece of steak is just so, you toss that in with some eggs, some hot sauce. Man, like, it is so good as leftovers. That's what Ruth is getting. And therefore, what spiritually is put on display here is the lavish kind. It's not just Boaz. Remember, it's God's instrument is Boaz, and he's demonstrated his covenantal favor to Ruth by providing her until she is satisfied and has more to eat as she gets home. It's incredible. This is Je- Jesus is not stingy with his blessings, folks. And don't just spiritualize this. Don't just spiritualize this stuff. It, it, has, it has great, powerful application in all the true spiritual ways. He has satisfied us. He has satisfied us spiritually. There is no need spiritually that we ultimately have. There's just not. He has promised his presence. He has promised his power. He has promised forgiveness. He has promised to take the shame away. He's promised to defend us in all these spiritual ways. It's true. We have to be so careful, though. And I know with all the suffering, it provides even more confusion to this particular reality. But God isn't isn't just interested in your spiritual well-being. It's good that that is the priority, but he's also interested in your physical well-being. That's why when the kingdom shows up, there's healing that's taking place. God, God doesn't like the fact that people are working their tails off and still struggling to, to live check by check. Let me just toss this in here. The book of Ruth in the Hebrew Bible is right after the book of Proverbs. So, you end the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 31, what's that all about? Oh my goodness, Proverbs 31, woman, look out. Like, she's, the, she's a prize, right? She's bold, she laughs at the future, man, but she's busy. She is busy. And therefore, part of this idea of 
of Proverbs being right before Ruth is to ensure us that, yes, this faith that we're talking about here must be informed by wisdom. Wisdom is not primarily cerebral. If I, if I can just make sense of it, then it's the right thing. Where does wisdom begin? Begins with the fear of who? The Lord. Ruth sees what God provides. There's gleaning. Okay, I'm going to step out in faith, trusting that God cares about me spiritually, but he cares about me physically. I will work. I will not stand back and in action and just kind of this mentality of victimhood. No, I'm going I'm to take that step out, right? I'm going to be wise, but I'm going to be wise primarily by fearing the Lord and, and, and therein exercising faith. And what we see is God is concerned for our spiritual well-being and for our physical well-being. It's why then Jesus would say, oh, like, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. What are all these things? Physical. They're physical things. That there would be provision, that there would be a shirt on your back, right? God cares about the physical things and the spiritual things. Don't just put this broad swath of spiritualization uh, application to this text. We need to recognize God cares about the physical things as well. And folks, ultimately we know then that he is one who, yes, will invite us to his table. He will satisfy the hungry. And one day, one day, we will see this fully realized. What's the table that we will all sit at? The Lord's table. The table of the marriage feast of the Lamb. One day, there's going to be this wonderful, you know, it is a good thing even here and now that when we have weddings that we actually, like, enjoy them. Like, get it on. Like, let's celebrate. Let's get the music blaring. Let's have a bunch of good food. Why? Because it's all to prefigure something of a feast that we will have in glory when we will see Christ face to face and he will have his bride, his people, right? This is what Jesus, come on, you have a place at my table. The engagement has happened and we look forward to this day where there will be no struggles with sin, there will be no struggles with, well, do I belong, do I not belong? Like, it will be finally and fully realized. No more struggle, just the full, perfect fulfillment of our relationship to Christ as his bride. No longer broken, no longer stained by sin, but robed in the fullness of his pure perfections. I can't wait. You can't but see Boaz as the Christ, but as the Christ figure in this whole story. He is the instrument of God's lavish love. He is inviting the hungry to his table and satisfying them. It is what God does as he favors those of faith. Third, then, God showers the needy with his kindness. Verse 15, Ruth returns to gleaning. This is all in a day, by the way. It's like you're just watching kind of like the, the morning happen and lunch happen, and now she's continuing to work. She's gleaning, and, and, and Boaz instructs his servants, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. Don't, don't get on her for grabbing stuff that she otherwise shouldn't, right? And also pull out some of the bundles for her to glean. So be super lavish to her. 
Now Ruth finishes out the day. She beats out what she had gleaned. It's part of the threshing floor, getting the stalk and the chaff off the grain, right? So she does all that work, and as the text says, she comes away with an ephah of barley. That's anywhere from 30 to 50 pounds of grain. That's like that big dog food bag, you know, that you get, and like no one can actually carry that thing. Like that's what she's getting. She has 30 to 50 pounds of grain, which is enough for them to eat for many weeks, if, if not several months, right? So remember, what they needed is food and family. And there it is. Food has been provided. Now, she comes home with that big, you know, dog food bag kind of thing, and Naomi is stunned by what she sees. Naomi is, you know, jaw dropped. And then Ruth shows the bag, but then goes to her to-go box of lunch. And oh, by the way, like, we got dinner this evening as well. Naomi is amazed, right? And of course then, like any mother-in-law, right? She's got questions. Tell me about this, right? And, and, and so she just wrote, where did you go? And who did you go to? And, and, and what happened? And Ruth says, I worked with a man named Boaz. This is an incredible moment. You think of the suffering that Naomi has gone through. You think of her heart just bearing the weight of the grief that she has endured. She, she's, she's gone through hell and back. She's carrying it all on her shoulders, and she is. She's struggling to know that God is great and God is good. But then Ruth says, I worked with a man named Boaz. And it's in that moment, if we could read it into the text, it's like God just stepped into Naomi's heart and lifted the burden of Naomi's suffering and put it on his own shoulders. That's what he's doing. So Naomi responds in verse 20 with benediction. When you come to taste, know that God is good. What's the response? I've got to give him praise. She blesses this Man, and in this moment of realization, this is such an important text, says, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Now, it's hard from the text to know whose kindness she's actually referring to. Is it Boaz's kindness or is God's kindness? Like, whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead? But that's the point. It's kind of a play on words. Is it God's or is it Boaz's kindness? It's God's lavish kindness demonstrated through Boaz. But what is clear to Naomi in this moment of realization is that God has not forsaken her and nor the dead. It's like God is revealing his kindness, a kindness that actually has followed her through her sufferings. It's a kindness that has not let, let go of seeing her and knowing just what she has endured. It's this incredible kindness that has been with her all along and now is suddenly being realized. To sweeten the realization of this all the more, it's not only, wow, God provided the food, and now this Boaz. Boaz is not just a random guy. He's family. And not just family, but as verse 20 says, he's a redeemer. 
The idea of Redeemer is that he's one in the family line who under Old Testament law could buy back Limelech's field and who could even potentially take Ruth as his wife. It could be everything that they are in need of, in other words, right? What has been lost to some degree can potentially be regained. It's a world of potential now that they stand in. It, she, it's no longer the fact that they're empty, as Naomi would say at the end of chapter one, that I, we're just empty without any possibility of, of regaining what has been lost. And now she stands in a world of possibility. Blessings abound at this point. Oh, there's incredible. It's like this divine groundswell of activity, like God's behind it and something is about to happen. There's more possibilities than Ruth and Naomi could have ever imagined. Now, as the chapter closes out, Naomi encourages Ruth to finish out the harvest season, those two to three months of labor, taking up Boaz's invitation to come hang out in his field. And so that's what she does. It's lavish kindness. It's, again, a picture of Christ. He showers us with kindness to the point where scripture would say, as we referenced a little bit earlier, don't worry about what you will eat <laughs> or what you will drink or what you will wear, but seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Boaz is the picture of Christ showering the needy with kindness. This is the favor of our God. Now, finally, by conclusion, as we look at God's favor, the point of the text, and I hope this has been the effect of it, is in some way to comfort you, right? This is who our God is. <laughs> we should take comfort like Ruth is taking comfort under the shelter of God's wings. It should assure us that God is for us, that even where we can't see him, he's providentially at work. It's just the black light hasn't been brought on in our, been brought on in our circumstances. So I hope this comforts you. I hope this assures you. I hope in some way this renders peace to your heart. But folks, the text isn't just to just kind of pat you on the back. As much as it's there to do that, right? To encourage you. We're supposed to be challenged we're supposed to be challenged by Ruth's risky faith and by Bo Boaz's compassionate Christ-likeness. Right? You're, you're supposed to be provoked to faith-filled action. Right? So while, folks, we, we need to realize that while we come into relationship with Christ by faith, apart from works, we are to live out our relationship with Christ by faith that is put to work. Right? So this is the ethic of this covenant relationship between God and his people. Faith and favor, risk and reward as led by the Spirit of God. Folks, let, let me just get to the brunt of it. Life, and then I feel it all the more coming from our, our time in 2019. Life is short, is it not? Life is short. Is tomorrow guaranteed? No. No, it's not guaranteed. So don't, I would just bluntly throw it out there. Don't 
waste. Don't waste what God has given, right? Don't waste his blessing. Don't waste the time by not being filled with this faith-filled action to move forward. As C.T. Studd, he's a British missionary, turn of the 20th century, he said it this way in poem form. He says, only one life, yes, only one, soon with its fleeting hours will be done. Then in that day, my Lord, to meet and stand before his judgment seat, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. He says, give me, Father, a purpose deep. Do you want purpose? In joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Now let me, let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say "Twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Don't waste this life. Let's pray. Father, we want to commit ourselves to you. We want to commit the fact that we may not see where the black light would be turned on and we can't see your fingerprints marking the way. We can't see your blessings through perhaps the darkness. But God, we want to commit ourselves to you trusting, trusting, trusting that you are a good and great God who is active in our lives beyond ways we can fathom, beyond ways we could know. And, and there are ways that are glorious unto you, but good for us want to commit ourselves to you. God, and where, you're, where you're provoking us perhaps to take unique steps of faith, God, would you not let us just kind of waste those moments where you're prodding us to step out and speak to that coworker, where you're prodding us to step out and speak to that neighbor, perhaps that family member who just needs to hear something of, who you are. God, would we step out in faith? You've given us responsibility. And God, where there's callings upon our life that we're kind of shrugging off, where there's callings perhaps that we don't even have eyes for, we just could never fathom that you would want us to be used for your kingdom purposes in those kind of ways. God, uh, take away kind of the ordinariness of our own mindset. Give us eyes to see you. Give us hearts that would be inclined to your purposes. We don't want to waste our life. We want to invest it into your kingdom purposes. We want to know the bounty of your favor, yes, in glory, but even here now where we take steps of faith and encounter something of your lavish favor. We know you sometimes do that through physical blessings, sometimes through just spiritual protection, but sometimes you just let us know that you're at work. You turn the 
the black light on so we can just see something of your presence a bit more clearly. But God, we would, we would just ask that as we take steps of faith, would God come with lavish favor? Show us that you're good and that you're great. And maybe it's not through some crazy extort, extraordinary, you know, thing that gains the attention of, of the newspapers and social media, but maybe it's just the simple things. It's the simple steps. It's the simple needs that we've been crying out for you to meet and where you step in and you show your good favor. God, for all the many requests that we carry on our hearts, that we regularly toss up to you, God, would you move on behalf of the faith of prayer? So many ways to apply this, Lord. So I just ask that you would encourage your people. And now, Lord, as we turn to the table, <laughs> thank you that you invite us to it. As we take the bread and we take the cup, oh Lord, would it be, would it be, yes, that we're, we're, we're eating a cracker and taking in some juice, but in those moments we're sensing something of your favor that shields us from unmerited shame, shame that does not belong. As we take the cup and, and the cracker, would we know that your body's been broken, your blood has been set, shed so that we would be satisfied. Bring us every good blessing. God, as we take that cup and that cracker, God, would we know that you're a God who's postured to shower blessing upon us, spiritually, physically, and ultimately one day in glory. So we look to you and thank you that through Jesus, you have shown us incredible favor. We bless your name, Yahweh. We bless your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, with that said, let's go ahead and participate in the Lord's table. Um, I'm just going to ask that you come and grab the elements, take them to your seat, knowing who this God who shows us favor is. The one who cares for you, even now. So as you, as you take the cup, the cracker, let it make you think of Jesus, who's opened the way to shower favor upon the needy. So let's go ahead and stand, come forward, gr grab the elements. You can take them at your seats, and we'll sing a final song together. <laughs>